Hello and welcome back to the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I am joined as ever by my co-host, Will Davis Coleman. Hi Pat, you alright? I'm good. You see, you use your last name again. We go back and forth on whether we oh, use last names. I forgot. I, 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 I panicked, to be honest. I, I didn't know what I was saying. <laughs> but here we are, the last city of the series. I'm really excited. Yeah. So these next two episodes are the last two you're going to get for this series, listener. Yeah, yeah. I've really enjoyed it. And we hope you listeners have enjoyed it as well. I think this has really kind of pushed ourselves a bit out. We've explored some kind of really more interesting stories. I mean, not that we don't still love assassinations and murder stories. I think all the stories we've managed to do for this series have been really like broad and interesting and kind of weird, which is great well, fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure what Patrick's going to talk about today, um, so it'll be a surprise to me too. But um, we've really managed to, every single episode, not do the same thing as another episode. So they're all yeah. like about different things, and that was actually done unintentionally, but I think it works really well because we get real variety. Mm, mm, yeah, it's kind of worked out really well. I think the closest was London, where we both did a kind of murder, but oh, mine yeah, was a bit more true. serial killery, and yours was a bit more Viking justice-y. So, you know, still pretty broad. But yeah, that's what we've really enjoyed about this series. I think it's just, it's kind of pushed the boat out. And there's just, there's a lot of weird stories in history. And you learn about all like the famous ones. But I like the fact that we've learned about the kind of weird and strange ones that have kind of come out of nowhere. And it really show a different side to these cities, which is fun. Yeah, I mean, honestly, for me, the city, every time we started a new city, it was like, oh, Okay, let let's get in the mindset of this. So you know, you put on the music of that time or of that city, and you. <laughs> That's I, what I, I told you, you to do. It works. Yeah, doesn't it? Patrick told you to do it, and then also uh, looking at old maps, looking at artists from the time. You really sort of mm. get this sort of punch of culture, and then you're like, right now I'm in the mode. Let's go find a story, and it's just, it has been the most enjoyable research I think I've ever done. <laughs> it's been challenging, but it's been fantastic fun. Take that uni degree. This is yeah. way better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're getting marked on this one, so it's a bit better. That's true. That's true. Um, Other so than yeah. by our by our listeners, exactly. Um, and actually, if you would like to mark us, uh, you can go on and review us wherever you listen to us on your podcast. Please leave. If you want to give us a, a letter grade and give us horrible flashbacks from uni, please do that. Or if you just want to say you've done something <laughs> terribly wrong, yeah. <laughs> if you want to correct us, that's fine as well. Uh, but yeah, so you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on our Instagram at Cloak and Dagger Podcast. I did that right, yeah. Yeah, you did that right. <laughs> I paused because I could never remember how to say it. Um, but yeah, and you can talk to us on there. You can message us. Uh, we're, we're pretty good at getting, or you're pretty good at getting back to people. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Um, there's, I, there's I'm, a bit of it, whenever you're DMing uh, our Instagram, it's Will who's replying, yeah. not, not Patrick. <laughs> I think I've I sent hope. like one message back, possibly to someone I know, but... Yeah, oh, really? You, <laughs> nice. Yeah, you'll get, you'll get Will, Will responding if you want to. So if you want to complain about anything I've got wrong... Just yeah, complain on there, and then Will will get back to you about it. So that's Will will slag it off Patrick, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so on the Instagram you can see images and maps and sneak peeks and extra facts and a whole bunch of goodness that goes alongside the episodes. So if you're not already subscribed there, subscribed? Are you subscribed on Instagram? Or you follow? Oh wow, you're followed. <laughs> God, to show you you're not in the social media world. Patrick. I really should be. It's kind of like part of my actual job. But regardless, yeah. <laughs> it's still a, a good place. So go on there and follow or subscribe or like or heart or whatever you want to do. Just, just yeah. you know, go with it. 
I think we've so, done the plug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this week, our final city, we will be looking at the city of Venice, which is an extraordinary city and one that I think world over people are interested in. I think it's probably one of like the highest tourism rates, uh, certainly in Europe, possibly around the world. It's I've I've been there. Have you been there? I wish I have never Gee, been. Yeah. I now really it's, want to go, especially after what I've been learning about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, when when you really dive into city, I mean, all these cities we've now talked about, I want to go to, even yeah. the ones I've been to. Like, I kind of, I'm now excited the next time I go to London, which will be in like a <laughs> month or two's time. And and yeah, I'm like, oh wow, yeah, I could learn. I could go to Barnes and go wander around, go find the gravestone or the lack thereof gravestone of that yeah. murder victim. Yeah, yeah. But this week, yeah, we are looking at Venice. Uh, I will be taking us away, exploring the kind of origins of Venice and then telling you about a very peculiar tale that's kind of integral to the ethos or the mythos of uh, Venice itself, which is kind of fun. And then next week we'll be on our final episode of the series with Will exploring something a bit later in history. Although, again, I have no idea what you're talking about. I think you said 1700s or something. I think that's the the most I know. <laughs> Yep, and that's all you're getting for now. So let's yeah. get into this one. <laughs> so, as many people would know, Venice is kind of chiefly known around the world as being a city that's built on water. Its foundations actually span a group of 118 small islands that are separated by canals and over 400 bridges. It's kind of a, like a unique... I think it's fairly unique. I was looking around to see other cities that like have a similar makeup. And although there are lots of cities that have lots of canals and you know use their waterways as a system of getting around, I couldn't find really many that are built on these kind of tiny little islands that have kind of been raised up out of the ocean, kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to hazard a guess, I was going to say, wasn't Manila or Hong Kong one of the Far I Eastern... Was, I was thinking that as well, but Macau. I was looking at it. It looks like there's still more landmass underneath them than in Venice. I mean, Venice, there's like nothing underneath them. I mean, it's kind of sinking, uh, as I've heard, which is oh, a really? bit worrying for all the really oh, great architecture there. But yeah, it is this kind of remarkable city that's built in a place that you wouldn't ever imagine uh, to build a city. And actually, we'll get into it, but the story of its founding is very unique compared to all of the other cities, which have been kind of based oh, really? on where it would be strategically well-placed for a city. This has a much more interesting and weirder past, which I guess makes sense, given the fact that it's in a weird location that no one would think... Bingo. All right, though, see those tiny little islands? That's going to be my city. <laughs> like, like what were the guys say? So Alexander the Great or uh, the, um, the, the, the Caliph uh, from our Baghdad episode? They were like, this is where my city's going to be, my glorious city. No one yeah. would have thought that of the, of the Venetian lagoon uh, and the small islands within it when they first came across it. Yeah, that's very true, actually. Oh, I know a place which might be a bit like it. Mexico City. Really? Because, or was it Tenochtitlan? The, the the place which was like the it was the um it was built on a swamp. It's on the uh, Mexican flag with a eagle with the the snake in it. That was in the oh. middle of a swamp. So I guess it was like that some sort of stinking pit of yeah. swamp. Yeah, yeah. It's and, kind of those yeah. places where yeah they they're kind of transformed for one reason or another. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the earliest Venetians were uh, Romans. So from the, the they can date ah. kind of their founding of this uh, settled area right back to the days of the ancient Roman Empire. 
but at that time, the Venetian lagoon was just home to a few small fishing villages. Not a really major populace, wasn't in any way a city, didn't really even call itself Venice. It was more known as the Venetian lagoon and an area known as a kind of... I think kind of Venice or the Latin translation. It wasn't really a, a singular settlement at that point. Okay. Fair and enough. and that's kind of where um, it stayed for the majority of the Roman Empire. However, towards the end of the Roman Empire, when Italy was under siege from a, a huge series of invading barbarians, this is when Venice kind of came into its own. So first you have the Goths coming in, and then the Huns with the good old Attila or the Hun coming in to just ravage northern Italy. And what the Roman populace throughout northern Italy were doing in these cases, they were fleeing these barbarians, and a lot of them fled to the Venetian lagoon, because the islands oh. in there were actually really easy, not necessarily really easily defended, but like it, they had natural... The, just the swampy lagoon was a perfect defence and they could hurry away to there. None of the invading armies were that bothered about chasing them to this lagoon. And so over and over again, as more barbarians invaded northern Italy, more of the Roman populace fled to Venice, especially in that surrounding area. And more and more of them just decided, why don't we just stay here? Because really? they'd have to build some sort of settlement while they're there hiding as refugees. And then a few of them, I guess, if they thought the world back there isn't worth it. Let's just hang around. Wow, that is so interesting. I, the, the only thing that springs to mind, well, the first thing that springs to mind is when Alfred of Wessex was fleeing from the Vikings, he fled into yeah. the marshes to then basically regroup. He didn't then start Venice or the English version <laughs> yeah. of Venice. But then, um, and then turned, everything went well for him after that. So, and that's the thing. People run to places which are hard to get to and also a bit shit mm, mm. to be honest why, why yeah, would you bother yeah yeah when you've got yeah, like it's padua to, it's to, and palmer yeah, it's down to the dissuade road. the 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 invaders to go like it's not worth trying to kill us like it's why they'll flee up mountains or they'll flee yeah, it's like to, wales isn't I it mean, yeah, i mean sorry yeah, exactly. no i am actually welsh so i can say that i'm a quarter welsh but like, that's what happened in wales everyone ran west as far as they could and settled mm, in wales mm, it's it's to find more easily defended places. And that's what kind of the Venetian Lagoon was. And what's really interesting is kind of as these refugees settled in uh, the islands of the Venetian Lagoon, they kind of watched the Western Roman Empire collapse under the invading barbarian forces, which is a kind of weird idea that they were watching their whole civilization that they were so part of kind of not necessarily crumble because it kind of is just taken over by the, the Germanic barbarians. But it's yeah. just kind of this... Re the founding of Venice is really built up around this huge change in the world dynamics. As the Western Roman Empire was collapsing, they were just hiding there and watching it from afar. Yeah, that's a really visceral image. And I can just imagine mm. sort of Romans who are fleeing from some of the larger cities you know, bringing news of the various parts of the known world which are being sort of destroyed and conquered by yeah, a barbarian lost. horde is really interesting. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. So it became a yeah. sanctuary for fleeing Romans. Kind of, yeah. And then as they decided to stay, they decided to kind of build up because it is, you know, these tiny little islands, all the water is marshy and brackish, so they'd have to build houses on the top of wooden poles but I guess as they were forced there, they started to build the kind of structures and eke out a bit of a civilization there. And then they decided to stay. And it kind of became part of their 
their image, I guess, or their ethos that the, the, the Venetian people were starting to become a bit more of a thing. Still not united in any way. There was kind of lots of small little towns and villages. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, scattered across the lagoon. Because it is quite big, but still not a huge amount of space. Sure, And sure. for the next couple centuries, Venice and the Venetian people found themselves caught kind of between two worlds. As Venice has kind of always been throughout its... Uh, many centuries of existence it has kind of been sometimes called the doorway or the gateway from the east to the west and the west to the east but at this time it was less of a doorway and just a, a kind of people who were stuck between these two worlds so in the west they had the remnants of the western roman empire and the barbaric germanic invaders who had taken over and to the east and who they were still kind of loyalty loyal to was the what was becoming the uh, Byzantine Empire. So what had yeah. come out of the Eastern Roman Empire as it kind of developed. And they were kind of loyal to it, but they were so far away from Constantinople, the Byzantine capital, that they were maybe a bit neglected and they started to build this kind of idea of their own independent people because they weren't really part of what was happening in the rest of Northern Italy because they didn't want to be anything to do with these Germanic... Uh, barbarian invaders but they were so far from constantinople they didn't really feel connected to that eastern empire i've never really thought about it like that that's a really interesting idea that they are like an island on that i didn't mean that to sound cliche but they're like an island mm. in between two massive culture shock places you know mm. where they mm. are they're like the continuation but in their yeah. own they've evolved through adversity really just to survive that's really really interesting Hunt- Hundred percent, and it's a very different uh, story of like a founding of a settlement than all the other ones we've dealt with. Where the other ones, like I said, were chosen for their strategic importance to build a great city. This was chosen for its strategic importance to hide from bigger civilizations and yeah. kind of you know escape from the rest of the world that was crumbling around them. It really yeah. like instills a kind of amazing legend to the to the city of Venice in a way that I think a lot of the other cities kind of have but not quite in the same way and certainly not as accurate because a lot of the other legendary beginnings of cities are most likely made up whereas this is actually this is historical fact this is where the the city of venice started to develop yeah i'm surprised how late on it was developed as well because Mm. you know it's on the italian peninsula you'd expect at some point that the romans would have built up the area but i guess looking on a map just to the south every southwest you've got padua and parma and Ferrara, mm. which are all sort of proper Romanized, they're all Roman settlements. So I guess you wouldn't need to bother. It's kind of why would you go up there? Yeah, absolutely. Hang on, I just want to find because there's a name of a town that's uh, that that fits in really well with. But I have to look through. Sure, sure. I took it out. Um, yeah, well, there was a, there was kind of a big settlement called Aquileia, which was the kind of much more uh, industrial centre for the Romans' point of view. So it was that that kind of sucked all the commerce or travellers. You know, those were the places that people were travelling to. Whereas the Venetian lagoon during the Roman Empire's heyday, why would they bother? It's just not worth it. And it was yeah. only through kind of this adversity that it started to grow as its kind of own settlement. Interesting. So. It was kind of developing its own uh, identity. It was still part of, technically part of the Byzantine Empire. But in 697, uh, the first Doge was elected by the people. And Doge is kind of roughly translated to like Duke or Magister. It's a kind of 
title that was bestowed upon them by the Byzantines. And okay. it, they've kept it kind of ever since. Well, except when it vanishes later on. Um, but yeah, so this is when they start to kind of see themselves maybe self-run a bit more. And because of the Venetian geography uh, as a collection of small islands, status and wealth weren't based on landed aristocracy because there was no land. So instead, oh. it was basically based on entrepreneurial entrepreneurial savviness or skill and so it kind of and this is where it developed its identity as a trading hub because venetian merchants would be sailing down the adriatic and up italian rivers buying and selling from all the markets they could get to and it was starting to develop into a bit more of like a capitalist republic in a very early version of capitalism because the person in charge was elected mostly by the people at least the the well-off people yeah and they weren't ruled by a king they were technically ruled by an emperor who was so far away they were beneath the notice and they developed this kind of fiercely individualistic uh capitalist ideology uh that was very distrustful of centralized power and they were just kind of this weird collection of islands that developed in a very strange way compared to the rest of europe or the the middle east or asia around them yeah, I can imagine that um, from the Byzantine emperor's point of view, they probably thought of Venice, especially in the early days, as sort of a temporary settlement that was going to be basically consumed by the uh, the, the Germanic tribes who had taken the rest of Italy. But I, th yeah. I bet it was a bit like, oh, you're still here? Like here, yeah. sort of centuries later, it's like, well, you, you, you're still around? It, How is that right on. It's right on the edge of their empire. And actually, and the only reason they would look at it in any sort of favour as a jumping off point to invade the rest of Italy because there's a couple attempts that the Byzantines make to try and reconquer the the old western empire's provinces and take it back from the Germanic tribes and there's a whole history around that which I didn't really I knew nothing about you kind of think end of the Roman empire nothing happens but obviously all the people yes. who took over the Roman empire are still living and are still people you know they're still living their history and there's this whole series of back and forth between them. And Venice is partway caught in the middle, but then also partway just ignored because it's not as yeah. important. Well, I've, I've studied that time period, but I've never come across Venice within it because it is, as you mm. say, kind of irrelevant. But yeah. Like, it's almost it's, a backwater. Yeah. It quite, you know, pardon the pun, because it is just, you know, brackish water surra uh, surrounding islands. <laughs> but it is a bit of a backwater and just a bit of a... Uh, not not needing uh, the attention of the emperors and kings all around them. It was kind of a good port and a place to stop off, but there were other places along the Adriatic as well which yeah. you could stop off in. So it wasn't hugely important. And so the kind of individualism that was starting to uh, come about within the Venetian people um, was forcing them to still be very divided. They had like fierce rivalries and they were constantly fighting each other. There was no kind of united force. They had a doge, but he was more like a middleman between all these warring factions. There was no like central authority. Okay. Until they came up against a common foe, which is a very classic tale in history where people are united against a common foe. Yeah. It's that idea that if the aliens arrive, then all the humans will just rally together yeah. against the aliens. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, it's kind of like, you know, football teams, everyone hates each other until it's the World Cup and then everyone's for England. Yeah, and hates true. all the other countries and stuff like that. And then, you know, we in during rugby, we all hate Scotland and Wales um, and Ireland. But then as soon, it doesn't quite work with Ireland, but Scotland and Wales at least. But then as soon as the Olympics roll around, we're all Team GB. Yeah, that's or true. We all, or, or we all the try Lions, and take credit yeah. for um. Yeah, we all try and take credit for Murray. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> oh, so, now Emma Emma Raducanu, who isn't even particularly. Oh, yeah. She's like a Romanian Chinese. Like she's got like everything. She's she's hardly. Yeah. Yeah, it does fall down. It does fall down, sort of supporting the nations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that's what happened to Venice. So they've got this kind of cool, legendary, semi-founding uh, story. They actually have quite a few founding mythological sta- tales. Um, but okay. this is the one I liked most, so I've gone with this yeah, one. Yeah, I like it. So Good choice. Uh, during the early decades of the 9th century, the Venetian people had been struggling with their loyalty to the distant Byzantine Empire and their desire to join with the latest barbarian invaders of Italy, Charlemagne's Frankish Empire. So oh. this is right around where Charlemagne has really expanded out, and he has taken over all of the territory that was being held by the previous kind of Germanic barbarian tribes. But Char- this is, you know, this is Charlemagne's big day. This is his huge empire that spans across present-day France, Germany, and is now eking into northern Italy. Yeah. It's the Carolingian Empire. It's really yeah. interesting. And I'm how they said t- I, said, I said Frankish Empire because I can't say that word. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> Glad to help. Um, and so to try to settle the matter, um, in 810, Charlemagne's son, Pepin, um, decided to conquer the Venetian Lagoon. So it had started to become a bit more of importance and they decided, you know, enough's enough. We want all of Northern Italy. We can't have this tiny little weird state that's technically part of the Byzantine Empire. I want to (laughs) take it over. And so he marched on the Venetian Lagoon, which is the kind of act that starts to bring all these warring factions together. So after a few victories against the Venetians, Pepin reached an abandoned town on one of the islands in the lagoon called Malamocco. And the only inhabitant of the town was a wizened old woman who told the king that the Venetians had, sorry, that the Venetian people had retreated to the central islands within the lagoon and that if he wanted to conquer them, he should build a wooden bridge to span the, to span the short distance between the islands. Okay. Weird idea comes from this random little old lady he runs into in this abandoned town. (laughs) So, King Pepin eagerly takes the old woman's advice, for some reason, um, and quickly builds a light bridge that does span the water and starts sending his army. However, as the king's heavy cavalry starts uh, moving across the river, their horses become dazzled by sunlight bouncing off the waves and become spooked by the rocking planks of the bridge. And so one after the other... Horses reared and leapt into the water, drowning many of the soldiers and leading to such chaos that the rest of the army began to collapse and the bridge faded away. So, what a terrible stupid, move. stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. We'll make a bridge on water and then send the heaviest people we have on the heaviest animals who are the most yeah. uh, notoriously skittish. Not, yeah. not like make fucking boats and do what the orcs did at Osgiliath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean that sake. would make much more sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like making those flat um flat bottom boats. It's like um uh speaking of the Roman Empire, but the episode where I, I spoke a bit about um the Romans invading uh Anglesey or Mona in northern Wales. They yeah. built little boats and sailed across. Yeah. M- made way more sense. But no, King Pepin believes this random little old lady who oh, says dear. you got to build a bridge. Maybe it's a bit more dramatic, and it's kind of a case where, you know, he's got a massive Frankish army, and they're these tiny little islands. 
if he doesn't defeat them quickly, he's going to start to be made fun of. Like, it's that kind of thing where you're going to get embarrassed if you don't defeat a weaker enemy quickly, which gives the weaker enemy a bit of power because they're, like, they're underestimated. Well, that fucking backfired, didn't it? I bet everyone was yeah. laughing at him after that. Yeah, like, absolutely. So stupid. So the Frankish army falls into the water, and then the little old lady watching this happen looks across the lagoon, sees her people as one people of Venice. And that's kind of their founding idea of when they're united against a common foe, the kind of Frankish invaders, and it's when they all club together and become one people. I now, see. This is kind of a, well, at least the old woman is a myth. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence. It's kind of just a, a, a grand story. But King Pepin's failed uh, conquering of the lagoon is true. He did send his men in there and they did fail to take the islands. More likely what happened is that because of the uh, swampy terrain, they just couldn't properly attack. And after a certain amount of time, disease started to really ravage the army. And eventually Pepin just had to call a retreat. Not because they'd been beaten back, but just because there was no way of getting in. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like the people who say that Scotland was never conquered by the Romans, but it's bullshit. It's just that it's a piece of land which they didn't particularly want. They were mm. like, well, let's just cap it off. And I'm sure that's yeah. what Pepin does. Pepin probably yeah. built some sort of fortification around it went, okay, let them have it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But from the Venetians' point of view, they see themselves as kind of defeating the Frankish horde. And what's kind of cool, and actually in a lot of places I've read, it's almost considered almost the last bastion of the Western Roman Empire who don't fall to the Germanic invaders because they never fell before. And I know, I'm sure you're about to correct me and there's other bits that kind of hang around, but it is, at this point, it kind of remains a republic. And it's this kind of interesting idea that they fled these invaders and were never fully taken by the, the Franks or the Huns or the Lombards who came before the Franks or anyone. Yeah. No, I wasn't actually thinking of anywhere like that. It was more that I, I mean, there's a lot of years between uh, the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of Charlemagne. So they're going to have to stay yeah, pretty yeah, pure yeah. and pretty incestuous in order to keep that going. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, I, yeah I, absolutely. I, doubt I mean, that... you know, they kind of just joined the Byzantine Empire. And so you could argue that the continuation was just a continuation of the Byzantine Empire. But because it was in Italy and it was so close to Rome relatively... Their own legend was that they were the last remnants of the Western Roman Empire who never fell yeah. to the nice. invaders, which is a yeah. cool story. It is. Uh, um, and what's really interesting about this story as well is because the little islands in the centre of the lagoon, which the Venetian people fled to and kind of held out against the Franks, that is where the modern idea of the city of Venice, the, the what you have in your head when you think of Venice, that is where that is. All around, it's kind of a region called the Rialto and all around the Grand, what is now known as the Grand Canal. Those, that is the islands where they fled to. So all of the rest I of the see. lagoon, the small islands all around it are still kind of considered part of the region of Venice. But the city of Venice started on that day when they fled there and I guess united as a people. Wow, very cool. Very cool. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah. And so after this event, they decided to try and really erect a city here. They wanted to build it into this great trading hub. And this, uh, during the foundations of the city we now know today, is where we will be starting our walkthrough for this week. Ah, brilliant. Looking forward to it. I love our walkthroughs. So, 
Unlike actually a lot of the episodes previously where our walkthroughs have been following just some kind of nobody or a, st a regular citizen through the streets, we will be following for this walkthrough uh, none other than the Doge himself. Oh, and wow, in, okay. And we're looking at 829. I keep Every time I read it, I almost say 1829 because I'm not used to saying <laughs> not a teen date, but 829, and at this time, the Doge was a man named Giovanni Participazio. I'm going to call him Giovanni from now on because his name's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you always seem to choose names of people who are so tricky to say. It's yeah, quite funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a trademark we're <laughs> starting to develop. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, so the Doge would be dressed in kind of long, luxurious robes of rich and, and brightly coloured fabric. Um, most of the artwork you might see of Venetian Doges uh, in paintings in the city or elsewhere will be from much later, kind of closer to Renaissance era time. And Giovanni wouldn't be quite as richly dressed as them, so there wouldn't be the kind of rich white ermine cloaks or the there's a there's a uh, Doge's a Venetian Doge's crown gold crown that's this kind of tall shaped thing which comes in much later, but he'd still would have been dressed kind of very finely and as richly dressed as anyone in the city, um, because he cool. still had a lot of influence, a lot of power. They really loved bright fabrics. They would have been influenced by the Byzantine Empire, who were very into long bright fabrics, um, and maybe a bit of gold jewelry as well, just to to to. Flash the bling. Off. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, he also probably wouldn't have been walking. So this is the, our first walkthrough that isn't really a walkthrough because more likely he would be being rowed down one of Venice's many canals in a flat-bottomed rowboat. The kind of stereotypical, not a gondola because those aren't invented for maybe about 200 years or the first reference we have of them is about in, in about 10-something. So it's about 200 years later. Oh, good. I thought you were about to say that it was going to be like in the 1800s. Now I had to rewrite my walkthrough because there's a gondola <laughs> in mine as well. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's, it, the first references of that early. I mean, I don't know how much they are similar to the ones we see nowadays, but that's when the idea of a gondola started to arrive. But he may have been okay. on a much more lavish, larger kind of barge floating through the city, looking upon his citizens who... I think good chance they would have liked him because a lot of them would have been voting for him. And although there is a lot of like tension and political drama, the Doges can't get away with just being this kind of uh, godly, divine king that doesn't have to care about the peasants. The Doge does have to rely on the people's support in order to hold his position. And there, you know, it, Venice had be kind of become a bit more of a united city at this point. And okay. so maybe there, have been, there could have been some love for him. I don't know a huge amount uh, about Giovanni. He's just the doge at the time of my story. Yeah, um, fair. <laughs> but I think he's, he was probably a nice guy. I'm assuming he was a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, and very powerful, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Well, actually, interestingly, um, so the doge's position had originally been more of a Byzantine official, kind of elected, but put in place to rule the city on behalf of the empire but sure. by giovanni's day the position was much closer to the ruler of a city-state so he probably did have quite a bit of power but was yeah. still very beholden to the people and the merchants and the church and lots of other big players within the city it's not quite as all-powerful as a king or as an emperor okay no yeah but i get that it's a duke Doge yeah, kind of i think duke doesn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some differences. For instance, the, the doge position isn't hereditary. And actually, although a number of doges early on really tried to make it by making their sons co-doge, and uh, then when they clever. died, the co-doge would take over. 
and then their son would do the same thing. <laughs> but quite often there would be an upheaval and ch- kicking those guys out, which I guess is what happens in kings as well in, in the rest of Europe. But the people didn't want a hereditary ruler. They wanted someone elected by the people. They wanted to be part of a republic for their new city. Yeah, sure. Gotcha. Although uh, at this point, the city wouldn't look anything like what we imagine today. It was really still a collection of islands, but there was this huge effort to build it into the city that it one day would become. So after defeating Pepin, which was only 19 years before uh, where we're looking at now, uh, after defeating this sort of Frankish horde, Venice had actually managed to catch the notice of their distant emperor, who was very pleased that his distant uh, (laughs) subjects had beaten back who he saw as possibly a bit of a rival and an enemy. So he sent craftsmen and artisans and a huge amount of money to Venice to help build it up and create it into this trading hub of a city. No way! Which is a nice thing of him. Yeah, Leo V. What a nice guy. What a nice guy. So actually, it really is a Byzantine colony in sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagining they would have built it in the Byzantine style. mm, mm, Yeah, it's probably hard to really act out against that when you're being bankrolled by the Byzantines. Yeah. No, actually, we'd prefer it to look a bit more Venetian. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it would end up being Venetian just by the the fact that it's built on islands. Although they weren't... They weren't necessarily happy with it just being islands because as the Doge floats down uh, between the islands, he would have seen massive construction projects that were intent on shifting the earth around them, raising it up, putting it all around the islands, raising the ground level and turning these islands to much larger land masses which you could build buildings on top of because you're not going to be able to really build firm structures on the kind of swampy terrain they were looking at and the little bits of dry land were too small. So there was this kind of really big effort to sculpt the land into what they needed it to be. Now that is awesome. This is happening when? In what's the decade? 829. Wow. So what you can do with the Byzantine Empire bank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just to have the the wherewithal to know how to dredge basically a swamp lagoon into mm. a landmass. I mean that mm. I wouldn't know how to do that. Not that the I'm the vision anyone. to do that. But like yeah, yeah the, vision, think. the vision. We don't we don't have enough land. So why don't we just make more land? I mean yeah, that's a genius t- idea. Like I understood that like in a, in my last episode on Tokyo, I um I mm. I, I talk about how they dredge uh, a lot of the land up, but yeah. they were doing that in the 1600s. This yeah. is happening yeah. 800 years before that. That's just amazing. Yeah. That blows my mind. And it's it's also on, it's in a lagoon. It's not extending the mainland like they did in uh, Japan and what they did. I think no, they did a very similar thing in, in Amsterdam. It's more similar to what the Chinese are doing nowadays when they're just creating islands out of nowhere to create yeah. naval bases. Bit of a different spin on it, but it's that idea <laughs> of just creating land out of almost nothing, which is yeah. a, a, a real miracle by the Venetians. Um, actually, if you're interested in kind of, any listener here uh, is kind of more interested in uh, kind of engineering and that kind of stuff. Um, the Venetians did some really amazing stuff with wells because they couldn't just drill down and get water from under the ground because the lagoon would fill it up with kind of salt and brackish water. So they have these really complicated, and I have to admit, I tried to work out what it was explaining, but it was a bit beyond me. But <laughs> Sounds kind like of a hole, el- a rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, yeah. Where it was elaborate rain catchers that would then catch at certain points uh, around the city or around the lagoon and then drain them towards underground wells which the rest of the city could draw up. It sounds Very really complicated, but yeah. really smart engineers were, were going on at this time. 
Yeah. I think there is that real common misconception that between... Because people know that the Romans had like underfloor heating and, and baths and things. And they know, obviously, that in the modern era, we have all that stuff. But there's mm. this kind of concept, misconception that in that sort of middle dark period that we don't call the Dark Ages, um, you know, we just lost absolutely everything and that knowledge just left Europe. But it didn't have to. People aren't as... Mm. You know, you can't kill off an entire technology. It's very... Un yeah. I, don't, I don't think yeah. you can... I, it's hard to document, but I doubt we've ever lost, fully lost a technology since we've in mm. invented it, I imagine, anyway. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, anyway. I think it's... At least, at least not in a kind of worldwide perspective. Certain yeah. regions might vanish, mainly because it gets taken over by a civilization that doesn't have it. But it will quickly bleed in. I mean, the Venetians probably benefited from being connected yeah, from to the, the Byzantines. Byzantines. Yeah. They they continued. They're far east enough. They kind of survived a bit of the Dark Ages and were able to. And all keep of that, on. all that technology from the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire was the Eastern Roman Empire, so they yeah. kept everything yeah. there. So they just brought it along, you know. It's, yeah, so it's, anyway, yeah. sorry. It's yeah. interesting that, yeah, we think of the Dark Ages, but actually, although it was the Dark Ages for kind of Western Europe, and but it was still fine for the East, Venice was the exception, and they were able to hang on to this kind of stuff because of their connection to the Byzantine Empire, and because they had the, like, the gumption to build a city out of nowhere, which I fucking yeah. love. I yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, they were also kind of, you know, deeply religious, deeply Catholic at this time, so palaces, chapels and monasteries were popping up all over the city um, all over the islands but the real heart and soul of the city would have been the marketplaces because this is where the beginnings of Venice becoming a real juggernaut um, of trade and mercantile uh, exploits begins this is where they really get into it although interestingly they weren't a huge you know they hadn't reached the stage whether these massive international traders bringing spices from the far east all the way to the west actually the first things they were really trading in was fish obviously because they're <laughs> on a lagoon and yeah that's all they ate so it was more trading within themselves and possibly trading to some uh, surrounding areas but the other big one which is interesting because it's like the beginning of their spice trade but the spice was salt and was a hugely ah. important export of theirs. Unlike most of the other things, which is much more about trading things from two different places, they exported salt, and they were so successful in this. And although it's not a hugely lucrative business, everyone needs salt. It's a really, you know, it's really useful. Yeah, I, it, it, they talk about how um, if you're worth your salt, that comes from the Romans. Yeah. The Romans were paid in salt. Their soldiers were paid in salt because you didn't have refrigeration. So you'd use salt to salt fish and salt... You'd preserve things with it. That's what I was mm, told. Yeah, it? absolutely. I'm not. I'm swear I've heard on QI that the thing about them being paid in salt is a myth. It's oh, just really? the word. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like part saying, part the wording in Latin. Salaris money as well. Salaris. Yeah, it, it's where you get salary from. You get salt from. It's the same. Yeah, I, it's the same. I think. Derivative. I think apparently, they, but they did actually mean money. It's just they uh, were maybe okay. calling it. It might be like how people nowadays call uh, money like cheddar or bread. It's like yeah, a kind sure. of, I think they were paid, but regardless, salt was a big deal, and to Venice, it was their huge export. They even actually had a salt officer, who I guess was a salty bastard. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess he kind of organised the salt merchants. I don't know. It's a weird title. That is a weird title. <laughs> they they were game for it. But what's really interesting at this time is that there are two Venetian merchants in particular who are about to bring the greatest prize of all to Venice, a treasure coveted by kings and emperors. And that is where my story for this week will begin. Interesting, okay. So, 
After their victory over the Franks in 810, Venice, as I said, had begun to blossom into a much bigger and major centre for trade. But the Doge and his fellow rulers wanted to augment their rise to power with some ecclesiastical clout. Basically, they wanted to be a bit more holy and be considered this kind of beacon of holiness as well as trade and ingenuity. Sure. But up until now, the patron saint of Venice was a 4th century Greek martyr called Saint Theodore, who was famous for slaying a demon-possessed crocodile in Egypt, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> like, that's a, pretty do- that's a pretty dope patron saint, isn't it? It's like St. George, but just like Egyptianized. It is like St. George, but isn't St. George also Turkish? Yeah, St. George, well, no, St. George was born in Nicomedia. I don't know how you say that, but it's in Turkey today, but he was actually born, he was a Roman soldier, basically. He was a late, Mm. latter day Roman soldier. soldier. Do they have crocodiles around there? I bet uh, that's got to be what the dragon was. It was a crocodile or something. I don't know. Do they have crocodiles in Turkey? If you're from Turkey or been to Turkey and know this, uh, letters are, can be sent to uh, the Instagram. Yeah. I'm just thinking because, you know, Egypt's not a million miles away from Turkey and Egypt obviously has them. And it's know. fairly far away, to be honest. Mm, yeah, That's yeah, like, yeah. It's, 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 still, it's still a bit of a trek. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what far, it could have been. Far enough for, far enough for a crocodile to travel. Yeah, um, but yeah. So that's what that 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 was who the patron saint of Venice was, Saint Theodore. And though though he would actually lose this distinction, which is part of my story, you can actually still see him if you go to Venice. He is atop a uh, like a column in the Piazza San Marco. Is with he? The, yeah, and he's standing on a crocodile. God, I bet really he's cool. salty as well after losing it to <laughs> and standing in Piazza San Marco, which was probably once Piazza San Theodori. Theodore. Yeah, 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 probably, yeah, <laughs> yeah. God, yeah, he's well, well, but he's even got the like, he's got the um crocodile. He's like, look what I did, and yeah. Saint Margaret did bugger all. Um, <laughs> I mean, he is a pretty important saint, but that was the thing. So they kind of considered Saint Theodore to be a bit meh in terms of a patron saint. They could really do with like a bigger name, you know. They, they need an influencer. Head... They need, an yeah, influencer. they need a big headline <laughs> patron saint. You know, they need they need the big name to draw the crowds. Sure, and. The Doge and his rulers were quite open about this, and I guess they spoke openly. Most of the city knew that the the Doge was, you know, in the market for a new patron saint, as you were during those days. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So in 829, which is where we're looking at, two opportunistic Venetian merchants found the perfect chance to gift their city with a far better patron saint. Okay. So the two merchants were who. Sorry. The two merchants were called Buono and Rustico, and at the time they were actually half the world away conducting some illegal business in the city of Alexandria. No. Yeah, interesting really? place to start and fun for us because we've covered Alexandria. I was so happy when I found that it was part of this. So wait, Alexandria in that time is uh, Islamic? Uh, yes, ruled by, uh, I think, the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, but sure. still has a Christian population. Um, because it was set up by uh, the well Alexander the Great, but then conquered by the Roman Empire, who became Christian, and then Alexandria became like a beacon of Christianity in Africa. Which is go listen to that deal. episode if you haven't already heard it. Patrick's one yeah. is awesome. Absolutely, episode our second city was it? Second city, yeah, the tsunami episode. Yeah. The tsunami episode, yes. Oh, um, actually, now we've just ruined it for you. Actually, no, we're calling it that anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll cut that bit out. Yeah. Um, 
So Bono and Rustogo were conducting some illegal business in Alexandria, although technically all business in Egypt was illegal at this time because the Byzantine emperor Leo V, the good guy who sent all that money, he had forbidden his subjects from dealing with the Muslims because kind of at this time and around this time, this is where they're really dealing with the Arab caliphates. So they're not big fans of the Muslim uh, empires that were attacking them. But sure. these two merchants, they're wily, you know, they're, they're fine working a bit outside the, the law. Um, and Alexandria is such a great city for, for merchants that they can make a real amount of money there. Yeah, sure. I um, think uh, I find uh, I find merchants and their wily ways always seem to get stuck in the middle. So if I'd, over the last few series, Osceola, yeah. in our Osceola story, um, two merchants, British merchants, are hanged by yeah. the for, new president Jackson and then... Well, I remember Rob Alloy, obviously, was he was a merchant and he was doing some shifty dealings in Salonika mm -hmm. from Alexandria. He gets fucked over. Yeah, I imagine yeah, yeah. these two aren't going to end well. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll break the trend. Let's see well, what happens Well, we'll wait and see. Um, so it's Buono and Rustico, the two merchants. They were in the city and they decided to visit the Church of St. Mark in Alexandria, where they prayed before the real sacred body of the saint, because that is a huge deal in many middle ages times relics and the bodies of saints are just the best thing in the world wait a minute the whole body of saint mark was in alexandria apparently so saint mark uh, if you don't know he's one of the big saints he's one of the big ones he is i'm fairly sure he is one of not the one of the 12 apostles of jesus but he wrote the, the uh, book of mark the gospel of mark it's Matthew, mark, mark luke and john yeah exactly oh, shit. Right. so okay. he's a big fucking deal and he <laughs> founded the church in alexandria which is why he was laid to rest there so Gee. he was big deal in alexandria and then stayed there he wasn't carved up and sent all over the other the world which is what happens to lots of uh relics and and saints they're kind of given you know you've got saint andrew's left um to little toe or testicle. something that means you're yeah yeah anything i mean i don't think a testicle survives that long but um <laughs> if you did that would be pretty amazing um so yeah so saint mark is a big deal and he really is the type of patron saint that the the venetians are looking for and these two merchants know this so while they're there praying to uh saint mark they run into two greek priests actually who are christian priests christian priests Christian priests living in Alexandria and these two priests tell the Venetian merchants about the persecutions that are happening to the Christians at the hands of the Muslims because as you say Alexandria is a Muslim city now and although the Christians are still allowed to be there they are now actually once again in the minority there's a short bit of time and yeah go listen to that Alexandrian episode there's a short bit of time where they're on top but by now uh, Islam has fully taken over and they are once again being persecuted within the streets of Alexandria. Subjects of the Caliph of Baghdad. God, it's amazing how many of our cities are connected. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, not that yeah, surprising, yeah. maybe, but yeah, I'd love this stuff. <laughs> it is really interesting, actually, um, that this is kind of linked to a few other episodes we've done. Yeah. But another thing these Greek priests tell the merchants is that they are particularly worried about a rumoured plan to rob Christian churches all across Alexandria um, to steal their marble to use for building materials. And they are really worried about St. Mark because he is this beacon for Christians in this, in, uh, this city and they're worried for his safety. I know he's a dead body, but they're worried about his safety. 
Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think there's that idea that the uh, with the relics, you it's like a sort of portal. It's like a spirit portal to the the saints. So yeah, they, yes. they worry about him in the sort of tangential way that like they like you would yeah. like a anyone like as a human. Yeah, they consider him still kind of present and and yeah. also you know more selfishly golden ticket to heaven if you've got a saint's body, which is it's... kind of you know that's again why the Venetians want a better saint because Saint Theodore. You're not going to get into the front of the line of heaven, but Saint Mark, he'll be, you know, he's he'll, a ticket he'll get in into the front of the line. He's a VIP ticket. Yeah, yeah, okay. I I, so, I find the whole um, sort of the Christian tradition of worshiping saints incredibly pagan. It's, in it's really origin. cool, isn't it? I never thought about that, but it was some other time. I'm sure it was when I was talking to you before we did a podcast, and then it clicked in my head that the Christian, especially Catholic Christianity, is really polytheistic, but just with saints. Yeah, because like that's mini, exactly what do you mini gods yeah. basically. Like um, just... my uh, my my girlfriend uh, Meg, she's always uh, she's her nan who's Irish and therefore very Catholic taught her all the different saints you're supposed to pray to for all the different variety of reasons. I think it's Saint Augustina or Justina. One of them is who you pray for when you're about to sit an exam to do well in the exam. <laughs> there is a saint for everything Sorry. in the same way that there were. Uh, pagan, you know, polytheistic gods for everything. You had certain yeah. gods you prayed for. You don't just pray to God or you don't just pray to Zeus. You pray to the specific god whose area is this is this region. Like, it, that's what you do. Yeah. It's really, yeah, it's really interesting that way. It, it is. It's really interesting. Mm. It is. So, Buono and Rustico have a brilliant idea. They need... They know that their city of Venice needs a patron saint and they know that the patron saint here saint mark uh, who was a really important saint is in danger match so what do they do they decide to steal saint mark's remains fuck off <laughs> how yeah it, well i'll get into Wait, that biggest mark, biggest heist of the century <laughs> i'm just trying to think back I, I imagine saint mark must have been born in the it must have been around during jesus's time oh he, so I talking... think he was born 5 ce Right, or I guess if you're doing Christian five AD, so you know he's. Uh, so he he was he was twenty nine. Jesus, he was twenty nine yeah. years old when Jesus was on the cross. So yeah. let's say he had a long life and lived to sixty. He mm -hmm. was dead by sixty five CE, mm. and you're telling me that it the body first of all survived for seven hundred and forty years, and then survives getting nicked after all that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine it's just. It bones at that point and from what i know the bodies are sealed within you know large chambers that you don't actually go into you just pray outside it oh, so okay. maybe a bit of protection um but yeah it's it, it, it's remarkable that they decide to just steal this guy which <laughs> yeah. i guess is a great idea and they want to smuggle him back out of alexandria under the nose of these uh, the muslim rulers at this time who although they wouldn't be big fans of saint mark wouldn't want him being stolen from under their nose because, and not. to be taken back to a Christian city. Because that could then be like a rallying call for against the Muslims, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, and it, it just solves a bunch of problems. You know, it protects St. Mark from the Muslims. It restores Venice's ecclesiastical authority, which they really need at this time. It would They would obviously probably be very well rewarded in Venice and possibly rewarded in heaven for saving a saint from this... You know these these foreign infidel rulers that have taken over his city. 
It's a tremendous gamble, though. Yeah. Because yeah. grave robbing, A, and also, mm. even though the Mediterranean Sea might look harmless, I there's always... I, I've done lots of crusade history in my mm. studies, and the amount of times there are storms that send people to the deep or to completely different fucking countries. Imagine if you lost the body of St. Mark. I mean, you even <laughs> yeah. if no one found out, you're going to mm. hell. Well, <laughs> you know? There's this there's this weird idea that uh, it's kind of called uh, furta sacra, which basically means holy theft, and the idea is that actually this theft would be justified because if you were able to succeed in stealing the body of a saint, you must have been in the right, because the saint's <laughs> body would not go anywhere it doesn't already want to go. So if you took it and were successful. The saint can no, can never be anywhere it doesn't want to be. If it made it to Venice, it must have wanted to go to Venice. Did Bono is... and uh, Rostico come up with that particular law? That is an it? that is an understood idea throughout the Middle Ages. That <laughs> is a, that is. I mean, and but then again, so either they use that as an excuse to maybe convince these Greek priests because they're just merchants, whereas these Greek priests they've got to convince them as well. Oh yeah, of course. Or they thought this must mean like it will succeed. Because we know we're doing the right holy thing. Saint Mark will protect us on our journey to Venice because we're obviously doing the right thing. Right. So Mark. I don't know whether yeah, or not. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna stick up for us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna fight off the gods of Poseidon or someone? They just hold it they just hold him up and point him at waves to to, to keep back the, the destroying waves. Yeah. So yeah, but so who knows what their head was. Either they used that argument to convince these priests to help them, because the priests bloody well helped them. Or yeah. that was the uh, reasoning they, they use to convince themselves to think this is a great idea. And it's I a bold plan. It. it is. It's brilliant. I thought you were going to tell me that the Doge had sent them to go and get a pre go and get a saint. You know what That's I mean? That's what I thought as well. And I don't know. I don't think there's much evidence for that. That whether or not they were sent for a particular reason. But everything I've read seems to think that they decided to do it while they were in Alexandria and when they heard of the plight of the Christians. But then again, that might be you know, when is history, we probably learn about this from Venetian history and they might tweak the story to yeah, make it look less, you know, like they just sent some people to steal a saint and more, you know, while the merchants were there, they were shown the holy way to bring back Saint Mark yeah. to Venice. Hagiography. I, say back. <laughs> I don't think, it, it doesn't seem at all likely that Saint Mark ever went to Venice. He would have been in Rome, <laughs> but he would, very unlikely he went to Venice. Really? Well, he was in Rome. He was in Rome, apparently. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, even then. I mean, Venice wasn't really a place, as you say. So I guess yeah. he didn't yeah, go yeah. up there. Might have gone fishing. Never know. Possibly. Possibly. And I think that might be the argument they may have made, um, just to try and convince He's them. a fisher of men, after all. Ooh, I like that. See, <laughs> we could do this. <laughs> so, the heist. And that's what I'm quite liking about this episode. And I might call it the heist, <laughs> uh, which we haven't done before. We haven't done a heist. No, we haven't done a heist. I love it. Yeah, it's very Ocean's 12. It's uh, Bono's 4. Because <laughs> the four men uh, secretly went to the tomb of St. Mark. They remove its stone cover. How? I don't know. Um, I don't. I guess maybe it's not as heavy as it looked. Or they were clever engineers and were able to like tilt it and get rid of the, the stone seal. They found St. Mark's body wrapped in silk cloth but it had lots of seals affixed all down his front to prevent um, anything being tampered because they would see broken seals and know something was wrong. Okay. But cunningly, the four grave robbers rotated the saint onto his stomach 
and then cut the silk along the back, carefully removed the body, replaced it with another body, who probably may have been another saint, although a female saint called Saint Claudia, and then sewed her back up within the silks, rotated her back, and it looked like nothing had happened. You're kidding. I mean, this is the story. I don't know how much of this is true, but it's. I think it's reported in a few different places, and this is certainly the tale of the Venetians tell. I mean, what it's a real fuck is Ocean's going on? Eleven, you know, yeah. quick hands, cutting everything, leaving everything as you found it. It's a it's a proper heist. It is, and I'm just, I'm listening to. I've got Ocean's Eleven sort of background music as you're doing. Like, as it's <laughs> maybe I should put head. Ocean's Eleven music. In the, oh, we, we'll have to pay some sort of fee. So, listeners, imagine Ocean's Eleven uh, music while you're while you're doing this, or just play it in the background while you're listening yeah. to this bit. Um, because the heist goes on, so they obviously have kind of covered their tracks, but there is an unfortunate element to saints, which is apparently very well known at the time, although apparently these robbers didn't know it. So there's this idea of holy odour, and apparently the saintly remains uh, all over the world give off a really strong, powerful, sweet aroma, which I think could more likely be a kind of gross decomposing bodies. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Maybe covered up by sweet smells. But that is what apparently saints' bodies smell like. And so when they opened up the tomb, the aroma flooded out, out into the church where it was kept and out into the city. So it almost acted as an alarm. And very quickly, as they were scurrying back, holding the body of the corpse, the city suddenly was aware that something was going on and that the body had been stolen. Although when they first looked at the body, they went, looks fine. It's got all the seals intact. Something else must have happened. But I imagine a close on closer inspection when they found a female body for St. Mark, someone would have <laughs> may have put two and two together and realised what had happened. Was it St. Mark or St. Maria? I can't remember yeah. which one we had. <laughs> I don't know. And they're all, I mean, they're also all, uh, it's like Muslim guards who probably don't care. And they're like, what are all those Christians banging on about? Was it a, was it a guy or was it a girl? <laughs> <laughs> and also, I, like you know that whole idea of Ferta Sacra and how the saint won't be moved unless it's uh, happy. Like, mm. I'm pretty sure being hunted through the streets. <laughs> yeah, Saint Mark is probably like, can you just fucking leave me where I was, please? I was quite calm and relaxed there. <laughs> well, that's the thing. They had succeeded in this first part of the heist, so clearly Saint Mark had wanted them to succeed because otherwise they wouldn't have succeeded. It's great circular religious logic that was really helping them here. I'm loving this, yeah. So they made it back to their ship, but then the difficulty was escaping the harbour because they would need to have their goods checked before they left, especially as now the city was in kind of red alert mode. However, they were cunning again. They decided to hide the body of St. Mark, one of the followers of Jesus, in a basket which they filled with raw pork and cabbages. (laughs) <laughs> and if you know anything about uh, Islam, you will know that pork is considered an unclean meat. Yeah. And so when the guards and the harbour masters checked their goods, they were repulsed by the meat and refused to look any deeper into their cargo. And they were allowed to leave the city. Oh my God. With the I mean... saint crammed into a basket covered with pork. He's fucking marinating in there, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it's salted pork and he's being, like, preserved. Stop They've it. salted him. <laughs> I can't believe I'm, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. amazing. 
It's a ridiculous story, isn't it? So, as you say, uh, the Mediterranean is kind of a rocky sea, and supposedly they were kept safe by St. Mark, who guided them along their journey um, and kept them safe, which, you know, probably didn't happen. But they bloody well made it to Venice. They make it all the way back across the Mediterranean. They land in Venice and they send word to the Doge, Doge Giovanni, and say, look, I know we shouldn't have been trading in Alexandria, but if you forgive us, we will give you the body of St. Mark. And so the Doge is over the fucking moon and goes, 100%, you are forgiven for whatever you've done. You've brought us this amazing treasure. What? No questions asked? Like, oh, here's a, here's a corpse. Yeah, it's St. Mark, mate. But I mean, I... maybe, but then they don't care. Like, I guess, you've, I guess you've also you had the priests. From, yeah, you've rescued like, them from, from the from uh, the Islamic caliphate. caliphate. Yeah. So, okay, okay. They're, they're I'll stop being so cynical. I apologize. <laughs> I've taken it too far. I mean, you're being cynical, but you're assuming the Doge would be, you know, honorable and respectable and go, well, we can't have this. It's stolen saint. Whereas he was like, no, this is a great idea. We can finally get some ecclesiastical clout, you know, oomph, clout. You know, we can suddenly be top dogs. You know, we've we've conquered the trading world. Now we are this big centre for religion as well. Lovely. Love it. So the Doge held a grand ceremony to receive the body. But interestingly, he didn't actually hand it over to the church. So uh, in another lagoon further to the northeast, there's an island called Grado. And there is, living there is who was known as the Patriarch of Grado. And a patriarch is a bit like an archbishop. It's this really high up uh, ranking Catholic official or Catholic priest. It's like one under the Pope. In fact, I think the Catholic Pope isn't actually called a Pope. He's technically called a patriarch. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure the Orthodox Church, the highest, um, uh, you don't get bishops, you get patriarchs as the very top of the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox Church. So it's it's a common term. And so Rather assumably, I think the merchants would have imagined the Doge would just hand the the body over to the most high-ranking religious official. But he doesn't. He decides to take it to his palace, which wouldn't be quite as grand as it would be nowadays, but his home for, air quotes, safekeeping to make sure nothing happens to it. Right. What, so then, just in case they like chopped him up and then sold him for relics? Yeah, 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 which actually is probably a good idea because the church is known for that. But then after a while, it's kind of assumed that he'll hold on for a bit and then pass it on to another church. But he just decides, now I'm having it, and it will remain. And he builds the first church of San Marco, and that church is what the foundations, which would one day become the the Basilica de San Marco, the grand massive basilica in Venice. And that's the Ah. beginning of it because they got the body and decided we'll just keep him here and build a church around him. I see. That's really interesting. Because yeah. I kind of presumed that the Piazza San Marco and the Basilica San Marco were already there and just named something else once they got the saint. But they built it no, they, after. They really, they really did build him around him. So oh, I imagine cool. they had the column with St. Theodore, who has now been forgotten about. Yeah. And he looks down as this church and basilica is built around the body of a church, of a saint who's a lot more important than he is. Although he, he's now like the like eternal, yeah, he's now yeah, like yeah. the eternal salt officer 
of the of the port of Venice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just—I bet he's got a really annoyed look on his face as he looks down on Piazza di San Marco. Like yeah. he'd just be so annoyed. Oddly um, enough, he was from Alexandria. Was it, didn't you say Theodore? Egypt. Theodore? So I don't know if he was. He probably would have been to uh, Alexandria because that was. They the probably had a lot to catch up on. You know, I mean, they both been. Yeah, from the he would have loved part it. Of the world. I don't think they had the body of Saint Theodore. I don't know. I, oh, I just imagined he was sort of inside the the statue. That is how it should be. And what? And the demonic crocodile is also inside the crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then if someone says the right words, like if, if Venice is threatened, both of them come alive and defend the city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so for the next few decades, the Doge and the church kind of fight over the remains um, because whoever holds it will have kind of spiritual authority over the city. And But after a lot of arguing and actually the forced abdication, abdu- the forced abdication of the Doge, Doge Giovanni, he's kicked out of office for wanting to claim the body of saint mark for his family it is then eventually declared that the body is the body is property of the people of venice and it is owned by the city rather than by the church or by a particular doge's family which is nice like it's considered he is the patron he is now well and truly the patron saint of venice and owned by the people supplanting sir theodore sir theodore saint theodore and what's really fun is i love the fact that you said you know were they you know no questions asked or you know were they did they ask anything about how it happened they they have no qualms about talking about how they got saint mark because if you go to the basilica today you'll yeah. see mosaic frescoes above the entranceways telling this story and bragging about the, the fact they stole saint mark really? from alexandria there's one there's a whole series of them and one of them shows a bunch of bamboozled muslim inspectors being turning <laughs> away from the basket of these two merchants so they're bragging about how they stole him yeah well, I guess when, back when um, the Muslim world and the Christian world were at odds, which I suppose it still is in some ways, um, mm-hmm. it was sort of like, well, you know, what they're going to do, come over here and tell us we're wrong kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Showing a, a time where two Christian Venetian merchants tricked Hoodwinked. Uh, the, the, great city, the great city of Alexandria out of one of the most important saints or relics uh, in the world is a great story and Venice yeah. loves it. And this story is like a huge part of uh, Venice's identity and culture. You know, it's really seen as a really great moment in their history, even though it's a big heist. But I like you know. that. I like that. And also that yeah. the fact that, um, like you said, that uh, at the beginning of this, that uh, Venice was founded by entrepreneurs. This is an entrepreneurial scheme because these guys were in the right place, right time. And exactly. they thought, this is it. So it, it plays well with that sort of idea that the Venetians are sort of, you know, pragmatic go-getters. Mm. Oh, we're in the right place, right time. Yeah, they they, they, they were smart rather than... And actually, because also, no blood spilt. Like, they didn't go on a crusade to recover his body, in which, which is the, you know, the standard go-to move of Christianity around this time, or a bit later. But it was just two guys who decided to steal it. No one died. I think. No. I, I don't think anyone died. Possibly maybe some guards uh, in Alexandria were chastised for losing one of the most important relics uh, they had. But, you know, minimal budget, if any. Yeah. And a clean getaway. And they and I, th- I, it doesn't say whether the two Greek priests came back with them, but maybe they just slipped away and were never caught by the, the Alexandrian authority. They weren't hugely part of it, and they were only really helped them get into the tomb. 
So maybe right. they were kind they of were like the inside men. men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so cool. yeah, so that's, well, that's a kind great of, that is, story. Well, one more moment because, like uh, my London episode, this story also has a modern twist, which I think you're going to love. And I'm okay. sorry, this, I think this episode's going on a bit long, but stick with me because I think you're going to love this. So in 2011, a British historian named Andrew Chug published a theory that posits that the remains uh, in Saint the, the remains of Saint Mark that were in Alexandria and stolen all the way to Venice weren't actually the remains of Saint Mark. He thinks they were actually the lost remains of Alexander the Great. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? So, yeah. So it's it's just a theory. There's no hard evidence of this. But the reason he thinks this is that so Alexander the Great uh, was eventually laid to rest in Alexandria after being carted around for a bit after he died. I think he was meant to go to Macedonia, then got moved to Memphis in Egypt, and then finally was laid to rest in Alexandria. And then in around the last historical reference we have of the tomb being intact was in 390 CE. And this is suspiciously right around the time when we first getting we start to get f the first reliable references to the existence of the tomb of St. Mark. And even more suspiciously is that in, in 391, so right around the same time, this is when the Roman Emperor Theo Theodosius I makes Christianity the official religion of the empire and bans all non-Christian worship. So it's Constantine who kind of starts uh... the switch, but it's this guy who's like... No other religions are allowed. It is only Christianity. And Alexander the Great had become almost a godlike figure who was worshipped, and so his body would have suddenly become illegal right around the time it, air quotes, vanishes, and right around the time the body of St. Mark appears. Really, really, really cool. I mean, yeah. I love that idea. And you know mm. what? If, if the Doge had known that, I wonder if he'd said he would have gone with Alexander the Great rather than St. Mark. Well, but Alexander the Great is not a Christian saint. He's not a patron. It's true. He's true. a pagan. So, I mean, it would still be a really great prize, but it's not really what you're looking for to when you're trying to replace old St. Theodore. So and it's is St. Mark, is he still in there? Is he still in the Basilica? So, yes. So they actually kind of lost him for a bit, which is a bit weird. So in <sighs> some renovations, he was moved under a pillar for his protection, and then they forgot where he was, which is a very similar story to Alexander the Great. Apparently, you can just forget where people are buried. <laughs> um, but he was eventually found again and then moved to a kind of sarcophagus right in the centre of the altar of the Basilica. So he is very much there. And... What's interesting is they could test this theory. That's what I was going to say. The, they have the remains of Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, who we did an episode on with Patrick Little. Go back and listen to that episode. But they found his remains. So if they could get access to St. Mark's remains, they could do, I guess, a DNA test or something close enough to work out, is this guy likely to have been born around Jerusalem, which I think... St. Mark would have been um, born around, or was he born, is he more Macedonian background? But also, just to just dates, dates-wise, he was born yeah. 300 years after Alexander died. Absolutely. So there's a way they could figure this out. But I think, I mean, this theory came out in 2011, and I wonder whether they will just never test it, because it's a huge blow to Catholics in Venice. 
because suddenly their patron saint, who they've worshipped for the last thousand years, over thousand years, is not the same guy. And it's actually this pagan conqueror who would be remarkable from historians' point of view, but useless for the Catholics. So this is a heist within a heist. Alexander, if it is Alexander's body, <laughs> yeah. he's like, haha, suckers. They thought yeah. they have St. Mark, but actually, it's me. <laughs> it's such a cool. It sounds like a kind of holy grail quest to find the body of uh, Alexander the Great, where you go to Alexandria and he's not there, and you realize, oh, he was stolen accidentally by Venetians, and then you go to <laughs> Venice, and that's where his body is. I mean, I mean Holy it's shitballs. That is so cool. Because didn't it's a ridiculous story. Didn't Alexander die in Baghdad? Or did I make that? No, no, in Babylon. Yes, I think he did. But he was taken. He was supposed to be taken back to Macedon, and then his some of his generals and friends Moved took his him body to did a tour. Sent, yeah, yeah, yeah. It went around a bit, and then was and was attempted to take it. It was. I think it was in Memphis for a bit in Egypt, and then eventually found its way to Alexandria, which is a decent place for him to, you know his final resting place no, yeah, yeah, yeah. not his final resting place if this theory is to believe which is it. I what say, i love though is that you go from like to babylonia babylon is right next to baghdad now baghdad mm. is linked to alexandria because that's where alexander's buried now alexander has now been moved to venice possibly you've just yeah. married up three of our cities in one i love it it's awesome isn't it have to say as a slight caveat there isn't any evidence for this. It's just a theory. And I think some other historians have said it's a nice idea, but probably wrong. And most Alexandrian historians, I think, have said, we still think it's just buried somewhere beneath Alexandria and it's just too difficult to get to. But okay. I think this is a much better, cooler story. And I think it's I think it's just a way better telling of the history. And Hell so yeah. I believe it. Well, yeah. th- thank you so much for bringing that to our attention because that is fucking awesome. And I do believe that's Alexander. I want to believe it. I believe uh, it. If next time I'm in Venice and I go to the Basilica, because I've been in there and it is it's really amazing in there. There's a lot of like gold, but there is, and I don't think I even re- registered. Oh, that's Saint Mark. I probably was like, oh, no. Whereas now <laughs> I will go there and think that is where Alexander the Great is. Yeah, I will put a poll up on uh, the Instagram and see what uh, <laughs> our our listeners think. So you guys get onto our Instagram and and we'll have Saint Mark or Alexander and we'll see what you guys think. You can have the final say. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. Although we haven't done an episode on Alexander the Great, we've really covered a lot of his uh, a lot of his histories because we did his beginnings with Patrick uh, in the episode about Philip II, his dad. I covered a bit of him for the Alexandria City episode, and, and now Visha we cover where's and the Visha Kanya. Yeah, exactly. And now we've covered his final resting place. Although we've yeah. never covered him. He is that kind of preppy, annoying kid still to me. And he's just painted his name all over history, quite literally, because he named a bunch of places after him. And even after death, 800 years, more than that, like over a thousand years after his death, he's still somehow a big part of our history tales. I love it. I absolutely love yeah. it. Well, so, thank you so much for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you for listening. This is my final episode of the season. I've absolutely loved doing these cities. Um, and... I don't. We haven't really worked out what we're going to do next series, but hopefully it's just as interesting as this. I mean, all of history is interesting, and hopefully we can dive into more stories like this. I mean, this was a mad one to for me to end on because, I mean, a heist. What, I love what, it. What, what it? What is it? A heist? This is ridiculous. So good. Um, so yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed that, guys. Um, next week will be our final episode of this series. But as Patrick <sighs> just said. 
there will be more series. We're not finishing. We're very happy with our with our with our podcast, and we're really uh, in our stride now, as I'm sure you guys can tell. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the final episode will be our will be my episode on Venice, and as Patrick mentioned earlier, I will be taking us to the the streets and gondolas and the waterways of Venice hmm. in the 1700s, um, putting a sort of um, a spin on what. Uh, would be quite a mainstream story on Venice but uh, trust me you haven't even heard the beginning of it yet so tune in next week for our final one and thanks again Patrick uh, and thanks for listening 